This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Tuesday, November 5th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Sean Griffin. Hey, Sean. Hey, how's it going? Good. Sean, will you tell us uh, who the heck you are? You're a developer at ThoughtBot, right? Yeah, my name is Sean Griffin. I'm a developer for the Denver office for ThoughtBot, and uh, I joined the company back in April. And uh, I do lots of languages, but one of them is Scala. Yeah, so we, we had you on today because we, we wanted to talk about Scala a little bit. A little bit. Uh, I'm a little bit of a functional programming fan, and uh, I'm curious. But I haven't have no exposure to Scala whatsoever. So I'm hoping to get a little bit of that, and uh, maybe we can talk about some FP, as it's known. Just quick, over like 30 seconds on what Scala is. So Scala is a functional object-oriented hybrid language. It runs on the JVM, and it's um, similar in some ways to Java, but not the terrible ways. Is meant to, it, it, It's a lot like C++ is to C, but again, in the not terrible ways, it's a lot like that to Java. Is it popular among people coming out of... It seems like it's popular among people coming out of the Java world that want like a little bit of functional programming, but something that's still kind of palatable for them? It's popular among those. It's popular among um, a lot of Rubyists, actually, who are looking for a statically typed language. Uh, the syntax is similar enough that it comes pretty natural. And it's also uh, really popular with a good chunk of the uh, Python uh, user base, especially in the scientific and mathematical communities. Okay. Why is that? Its syntax and the way it handles things lends itself very nicely to those sorts of applications. Its syntax is easier for a layman to pick up than Haskell, as an example. But if you wanted it to be very close to your Lambda calculus that you, as a mathematician, may be more familiar with, it's uh, it can be close to that if you choose to have it be so. So, so statically typed, that, does, that, uh, does that annoy you, or are you a big static typing fan? So I thought I was going to absolutely hate it when I got into the language. Um, there's still a couple of, of places where it's a tad annoying, but... It's nothing like I remember static type systems from Java. Um, the biggest one is just it's able to infer the type in most places, um, so you don't have to explicitly declare it. The two places you always have to explicitly, explicitly declare them are the uh, parameter lists for functions. You have to specify what it takes. And then if it's a recursive function, you have to specify the return type. Hmm. Otherwise, it, it, does, it can figure out what you want generally. Right. Otherwise, it can't figure out what the return type on the case that it recurses would be because that function is has no return value. And the compiler is unfortunately not quite smart enough to figure out that there is eventually going... Well, you can actually have an infinitely recursive function that um, doesn't lead to an infinite loop. And in that case, it would need to have a return type. Hmm. You just blew my mind a little bit. Lazy evaluation, man. It's It's the future. It, 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 it's, it gets into like old school, lazy, infinite streams. It's actually probably the most efficient way to, if, for example, generate the uh, Fibonacci sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, is to do an infinite stream and then just take however many numbers out you need to go. Yeah, I, I ran into this enclosure that they do that a lot. You know, it's something that, that isn't terribly useful in like the non-gimmicky, oh, I'm going to do the Fibonacci sequence type stuff for most cases. But um, if you were using WebSockets, for example, it really, really, really nicely works with WebSockets. So anything in there that you would like to steal for Ruby? Yeah, well, so one of the big ones. So it's a functional object-oriented hybrid. So um, functions are first-class citizens. You can have higher-order functions. 
But functions are represented as objects. Mm -hmm. um, and there are subclasses of function function 1 through function 22, which is just the number of arguments it takes. But um, So the way that it sort of reasons about this, if you have an, a variable of some kind and you put parentheses after it, it's going to call the method called apply. So um, you can have other classes that aren't necessarily a subclass of function, but that you want to be able to pretend it is a function. And so all you have to do is define the apply method, and you can call it like you would a function. Interesting. And then in some cases, there's... So one of the things I really like about Ruby is that Ruby doesn't have a ton of syntax. And the little bits of syntax it does have, uh, one of the big ones is uh, the splat operator. So in one context, the splat operator takes an array and expands that to an argument list. And then in another context, the splat operator takes an argument list and turns it into an array. And apply works similarly in Scala. So if you put parentheses after some, something in uh, some context, it calls the apply method, which is meant to... Um, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's, it's, it's nice. Um, being able to just treat anything as a function and put parentheses after it. Uh, it lets you sort of... We don't pass methods around as much as I would like to in Ruby. It's very common in um, Scala to iterate through an array and pass an instance method on the object doing the iterating. So rather than calling a method on every element in the array, you pass every element in the array to a function. Right. And uh, the syntax for that in Scala is very nice. It's also got a very similar syntax to call a method on each element in that array. Uh, and then it's very easy to like have that just be a function and then later replace that with a more complex object and not have to have the surrounding code care. Does this does the the hybrid is it hybrid OO slash functional thing feel weird at times? Because that seemed like different paradigms. So most functional languages have structs, right? I mean, they, you have some way of representing data other than ints and cars. Other than in a list. Well, and, that, and that's well, lists are something that can be represented using only functions if you wanted to. Okay. So uh, if you if you're working in a purely functional language that only has structs and functions, really, if you treat OO as functional and you work with only immutable data types, then having methods on an object isn't really any different than just having a function that takes that ob that struct as its first argument. And I, I would imagine if if someone was coming to it from Haskell, it might be a, it might feel a little weird. Coming to it from Ruby, it felt very natural. So okay. So I, I always think of one of the big differences between OO and functional as, as thinking like with in the object-oriented world, we sort of marry our data and the things that operate on that data. It's like I create a class and that class holds all my information and then also the, the things that operate on that. Whereas with functional programming, there's like a decomposition or a decoupling of these things. Does that sound true? Yes and no. I, so you have to have mutation at some point because if you have no side effects, your program is useless. In Scala, it's really just all about isolating the parts that are mutable and trying to make it very explicit that it's something that can mutate itself. Um, if possible, we try and use the actor model to uh, really, truly isolate it. I mean, the big, the big benefit of functional and the reason functionals become popular again is because multi-core processors work very nicely with immutable data structures because mutation and concurrency via threads don't really go together very nicely. Right, sure. So if you're able to use something like actors where an object is isolated in its own pseudo-thread, um, then you're able to sort of do your imperative-style stuff without having to worry about uh, any concurrency problems. But for the most part, Scala lends itself very nicely to nudging you gently to choose the immutable way of doing things over the mutable way. And um, it's a lot easier than you'd expect to 
isolate all of the mutability of your program to whatever the outermost le- layer of it is. It's interesting how powerful it is when a language sort of makes certain things easy and certain things less easy as, as far as how much it encourages you to write good or bad code. Yeah, well, and that's, and, and that's something that, I mean, it's, it's a very rapidly evolving language. Um, if you look at, like, the difference, the, the, the things that were added in version 2.8, 2.9, and 2.10, 2.10 being the current version, mm-hmm. there's so many things that, you, that it, once you use them, you can't imagine having ha- that language ever having not had them. Like, um, it's got a, a great API for futures and promises, and just making something, all of a sudden, this thing now runs sep- on a completely separate thread, non-blocking, but in a transparent fashion, um, and getting back just a promise that works how you'd expect in other languages that have promises, but rather than using promise-specific languages, most uh, most of these things, it's, it's, it's a monad, what we don't call them monads in Scala, but it's a monad, and uh, so monads in Scala tend to respond like lists with a single item in them, so... Um, if I've got a promise or a future, um, I would call map on that, and then that'll get run if it ran if the future completed successfully when that has a value. Okay, can you give me a quick summary of of what a promise is? Yeah, so it's um, a wrapper around another object that just says this is a value that will be available at some point in the future. Okay, it, it literally is like if you just imagine a list with one item, and that item isn't going to be there yet. But when you call map or filter or flat map on it, that that function will just get run whenever there is an item there to run it against. Okay. Interesting. So it's like, I know eventually there will be something here, and then when there is, do this work on it. Yeah. When would you reach for that? Uh, network I.O. Anything that's long and blocking. Anytime that you just you, you want something to happen concurrently. Is this like an alternative to using callbacks? Uh, jQuery uses them as an alternative to callbacks, yeah. Gotcha. When they're used properly, which jQuery I don't think does, they're not meant to necessarily... The idea isn't so much that you use them thinking about it as a callback it's more that you use it as a slight modification on what you would have returned otherwise but um it's not so much like if you're if you're thinking about jquery.ajax and how that returns a promise object when you use promises kind of the right way the idea is that you return that promise always and let other things add values to that and not try you don't try and necessarily encapsulate the the fact that it's a promise don't you want your client code to not care that it's a promise is that part of the the goal or no well, yes, but I mean, it's you can you can have so you can have that um, since it does respond to sort of map filter reduce. You can simply just pass a function on something else into map, and that and then that thing doesn't have to care. It's a promise. But um, if you have uh, if you're doing a web application, you've got a controller, and that calls some service object, which calls some other service object, and that service object all the way down hits hits a, a web service asynchronously. Uh, depending on what you're using to do the I/O, chances are you'll get a promise back from the I/O library, and you don't necessarily try. You don't block inside of that object and wait for the request to finish. You pass the promise back up from there, and then usually from that service object, a lot of times the promise goes all the way back up to the controller, and then the controller maps on that and says, "Okay." And then when this is done, return this HTTP response. You also touched on uh, the actor model as well. I still don't fully grasp what that is. Can you give me a give me a little rundown? Yeah, the actor model is. Um, so it's sort of the purest form of object-oriented programming, and it's a way of tr- really encapsulating state. So an actor can have all the mutable state it wants. Nothing else can ever see it. Um, an actor has a mailbox, and it receives messages. It'll process messages in the order they're received, and it'll process them one at a time. An actor, um, the nice thing about the actor model is, so an actor is just an object at that point. Uh, messages are 
slightly different syntactically than a message passing in Ruby, but it's fundamentally the same thing. But the nice thing about the actor model is that it lets you abstract away whether this object is in the same process, a different process, or running on a completely separate machine. Uh, and then you can add routers on top of these actors. You don't ever actually directly get a reference to an actor. You get a thing called an actor ref, um, which forwards on messages, and that can go through a router. So you can have infinite. You can infinitely scale these out. Why does that let you not care whether it's in the same process or not? Because there's like a queue in front of it. it uh, the the stage between you and the actual actor object, that that actor ref object, that's a thing that holds uh, that knows where that actor actually lives. So when you when, um, so you have to care when you're getting the actor ref, but most of your most of your code isn't going to get an actor ref. It's going to just take an actor ref and do stuff with it. And so people use this uh, to do concurrent processing then, because you can sort of not care about where these things are running. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, you don't need to care about where they're running. You can sort of scale them out um, because they encapsulate their own state. Nothing else can ever access it. Um, it lets you have mutable state without worrying about concurrency issues. And then one of the big use cases that I've seen for them in my dabblings is, uh, so in Ruby, we use sidekick or rescue or delayed job for background jobs. Mm -hmm. And these things just sort of let you have background jobs without having to get Redis or the database involved at all. So how did you get into programming originally? I got into it kind of on a fluke, actually. Um, when I was younger, I was in a not great situation and sort of needed to be bringing in a paycheck. And I just sort of lucked out and found a company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that was willing to sort of take me with zero experience and give me that sort of initial push I needed to start learning. Nice. And then just ended up sticking with it. When I was about 16, my back started going out, so I ended up having to sort of stick with it at that point um, just because it was a desk job that I was reasonably good at and uh, and I was having more and more trouble walking. So, What, was the, what were you programming in in Albuquerque? Originally ASP Classic, .NET for a little bit, Java for a little bit, um, PHP for a good stretch, and then Ruby for the last number of years. And then a little bit of Scala on the side. Yeah, uh, Scala I mainly got into for Android development originally and then have just sort of been expanding it from there. Is that is that a, a tiny niche right now, Scala for Android? It's bigger than you'd expect, actually. Um, not as good in terms of resources, like blog posts and books or anything like that. But in terms of just mailing lists, IRC channels, uh, it's actually a reasonably vibrant community. And every time I listen to a Scala podcast or talk to people about Scala in a group that's more than like three or four, there's usually one person who's like, yeah, I do Scala on Android. So it's it's people that want a refuge from Java but still develop for Android, I guess? Pretty much, yeah. And there's only so much you can do. Cause, so Java's garbage collector runs concurrently unless you run out of memory, in which case it does stop the world, mark and sweep, just like Ruby's. And Android gives you a very, very restrictively small heap size. So short-lived objects, if you're doing really functional programming, creating a bunch of objects and then throwing them away, you can end up causing that stop the world, mark and sweep garbage collection to happen more than it ought to. And then when the API itself pushes you towards mutability, it can be difficult to remain immutable. Well, that said... um, you know, so there's parts of it that can't really do anything to help. Um, but there's parts of it where, like, a third of the API can get thrown out and replaced with a one-liner. So, you, so it's it's terser than the Java, the equivalent Java? Yeah, well, and then just it, 
concurrency is sort of baked into it. So when you need to start doing things asynchronously, which you want to do actually more liber- liberally in Android than you would anywhere else or on mobile in general, because um, you want to keep things off the UI thread. And so just because that's something that's really now built into the language, it makes that really nice, whereas Android's API for that was very Java-y. You've mentioned immutability a couple times now. Um, does Do you find yourself trying to write more immutable Ruby code thanks to your Scala exposure? Yes, absolutely. And it's a little bit tougher in Ruby. Um, so one of the nice things Scala has is called a case class. So um, creating a case class in Scala is similar to extending from struct in Ruby. Okay. So you get a couple of things for free. You get equals for free. You get hash code for free. Um, you get apply and unapply on the companion object, which is kind of like the class object in Ruby for free. So apply on a case class just is basically the constructor but without having to use the keyword new. And then unapply, which I, was, which I didn't want to get too into earlier, is the opposite of apply. So with a case class, if I have um, a case class that takes X and Y and they're both integers, in most cases when I do uh, apply and then X and then X and Y, it'll create a new case class with those values. But then in some other cases, when I do uh, like case class foo, so if I do foo, open paren, X, Y, close paren, it's going to take in a instance of that class and set the variables X and Y with the value of those of those instance properties on, on the object itself and, and destructure the, uh, the object back into what it was created from. So with case classes, you're sort of promising that you're not maintaining any mutable state of any kind. When you, ha- when you have a lot of these, it's meant to, you can really represent sort of all, you can represent your abstract syntax tree almost in front of you. Um, have you ever read uh, Understanding Computation by, by uh, what's it? I can't remember his name, Tom Stewart, I think? Mm-mm. It goes through uh, kind of building out parsers in Ruby. And at one point he shows, like, here's what the abstract syntax tree for this language looks like. And here's what it would look like if we just manually created those objects with Ruby. Mm. And all of those dot news really clutter things up. And it's just shocking how much when you're building a complex structure of objects, how much just having the name of the class followed by the arguments and nothing else, it's amazing how much cleaner that can make code look. Huh. Just avoiding that call to new? Avoiding that call to new. And if you're doing like a list of a thing that contains another thing, it just looks very clean. Interesting. You get like a constructor for free kind of. Yeah. Well, the constructor you get for free always. In Scala, it assumes that if you take constructor arguments, you want to set those to a instance variable that's private to the object. Um, and that's the default. Um, if you are a Java programmer, it by default assigns it to a um, protected final instance variable. Uh-huh. Um, so it can't be changed outside of the constructor and it's visible only to the class. So it's it's the struct constructor always. Um, and then you can make it public by adding val and you can make it mutable by adding a var. And then the other one you get for free though, and so this is one of the things that makes Scala nice for immutability, is you get a method called copy for free. Mm-hmm. So copy just takes all the same arguments as the constructor argu- uh, takes, but it, de- it has a default um, value, uh, default for every single one. So it's used for replacing individual parts of a case class. So if foo has X and Y, I just want to replace Y, I can call copy and then do Y equals whatever. And all arguments in Scala are both named and ordered. So you, you, it says, give me a, a new copy of this object with, and I'm going to override the value in this spot. Just, yeah, but you just do one or two as opposed to having to then repeat every existing value on the class. Hmm, interesting. Um, and, you can, and you can end up replacing really deeply nested data structures relatively tersely. So we, we were a 
popping back up a couple levels in the stack, we were talking about how uh, immutability changed the way you write Ruby, or you're writing more immutable Ruby. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, so that sort of seeing that immutable doesn't necessarily mean difficult has just led me to try and remove uh, immutability when I can in Ruby. And unfortunately, in Ruby, it's just harder because, for example, strings are mutable. And, I mean, you can go in and just call freeze on everything, but that actually can have significant slowdown. Uh, There's a gem out there called adamantium, which literally does that, and it has significant performance hits if you use it too uh, widely. So... You can't. So one of the nice, the nice things that's liberating about immutability in Scala is that I can feel comfortable allowing my classes to be destructured and exposing everything because nothing can be changed without my knowledge. In Ruby, I can't. I can still be immutable, but I can't expose things from that immutability as much. I still have. I still, even if I'm immutable, feel like I have to encapsulate that object's state, even if there is none, because it's possible to introduce state without my knowledge. So I tend to make my adder readers private by default and things like that. So you feel more comfortable exposing more data in Scala because you know it can't get changed. But doesn't that still invite other things to get coupled to your data? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you still have to apply you know, your, your same principles, and you have to think about whether it makes sense to, to couple these things here or not. One of the nice things is, uh, one of the nice uses of where you'd want to uh, destructure a case class, as an example, if you're using actors. So the messages can just be any object. And if you want to pass arguments, you usually wrap that in a case class. Um, so the case, cl- so the name of the class is essentially the name of the me- the message that you're passing, and then the arguments to that case class are the arguments to that to that method that's going to get called under the hood. And at that, and so it becomes very, very easy and very clean looking to take the arguments back out of that case class when you're responding to that message in your actor. And when you're working with things like tuples, you basically have to extract them out in order to do anything useful with them. Just going back to that mutable thing for a second, the thing that I've struggled with in Ruby is like, okay, I can I can get some I can do some immutability here and there, but at the core, like when I'm writing, working on a Rails app, for example, I have a mutable database backing everything. So like I'm like I'm usually it's like oh go in there and update the user's address and like now they have a new address and you're constantly doing this. You can have the database be the mutable thing backing it without having those objects be mutable per se. Hmm. True, but you're but the. At the, at the back at the at the back end where you're storing everything you you're still dealing with this sort of like fundamental mutability right true but that's generally speaking um you're not necessarily uh interfacing you're not you're not changing the data and then in the same request accessing the database for that data that you just changed i mean you you're, you have to have side effects your your program's useless without side effects having side effects and having mutable state in your program Aren't um, aren't the same? Aren't necessarily the same thing? You can have a mutable database that you're writing to without um, representing that with mutable objects per se. Mm-hmm. If you've if you've just updated the user's address, that's because you have a user object that has the new address that you want to save. But then you're not going to in that same request, which is based in my eyes, sort of the entry point to your application in a web app. You're not then going to say, oh, and give me that user that had that cha- that that address. It's not cheating the system. I guess one one direction this has been pushing me is sort of as opposed to an update in place type thing to sort of record records like facts about things like oh you had a subscription on this date and if you cancel I don't like update your subscription to say it's canceled or like delete it even worse it's like I give you a new object like you now you have a canceled subscription like I'm sort of like almost like a append only type thing yeah 
so I, I've been I've been leaning that direction lately, and I think it's I think it's a positive. There's a there's a database that takes us all the way to like the extreme, which is uh, Datomic. Are you familiar with this? Yes. Yeah. So this is a, a Rich Hickey invention, um, and the guy that wrote Closure. And so it's it, nothing ever goes away. Like you record these like tuples of facts and like what things were true at what time, but uh, you never delete stuff or or change it. Yeah. You kind of get undo for free there. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, you and you get and history as well. Yes. It's like how, what? How did things look two years ago? Well, they look like this. Yeah, and that's that. It, that's an interesting one to 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 use a system like that. The surrounding code sort of has to be aware of it, or at the very least, the code doing the querying has to be aware of it, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does take a bit of work. But you're right; I haven't actually done a ton of programming that way. But you absolutely could. It's an interesting direction. I, I'm I'm meaning to start a little side project using Datomic just to see what that feels like. So one thing that I found interesting: so the version of Rails we have in Scala is called Play. Mm-hmm. There's there's sort of three main web frameworks. There's Play, which is trying to be Rails. There's Lyft, which is trying to be this stateful server where server restarts actually cause issues um, that I haven't I've tried to use and haven't liked very much just because of the amount of boilerplate you have to get through to even get started with it. And then there's Spray, which is an HTTP wrapper around actors. Um, And no, I'm not entirely sure what that means. Okay. But so Play made an interesting choice, which is it does not include an ORM. And so I sort of had my knee-jerk reaction of, ew, that sounds like absolutely terrible. I'm going to have to write my raw SQL. So the first thing I did was went and grabbed a version of kind of ARel in Scala, which ARel, by the way, works way better in a statically typed language. And so all it, is, all it does is build queries, and then my case classes are my models. They don't really know anything about persistence. They're just sort of my dumb objects. Um, so it's more, it's closer to the data mapper pattern. Uh, it's not quite the data mapper pattern, but it's closer. And it didn't really hurt very much. I expected it to hurt more. Mm-hmm. There's three things that Active Record does that are more boilerplate than you'd expect, which is automatic setting of IDs and then automatic handling of created at and updated at. So getting those to happen for me automatically was a little bit more work than I would have liked. But beyond that, it's surprising how little you actually need an ORM. It's probably also nice to have those concerns separated out a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and then it frees you up so that um, so then I end, you end up very naturally with like a model that represents a new user as opposed to an existing user, so a user that's in the process of registration and handling the and you can sort of handle those differently and transform between them when you save it. Which we have. It, it's interesting to me that a lot of the patterns that are starting to become popular in Rails and Ruby are things that were done in statically typed languages because they had to be. So, like, we shy away from having, uh, by, from using static methods directly inside of classes because testing them, well, in Ruby, it's actually no problem. You can stub out the static method, but we shy away from it to avoid coupling. And in Scala, you shy away from it because it's untestable. You literally cannot stub out a static method because you, you, you just can't. You can't redefine a method after it's been changed. After it's been defined? Uh, well, sort of, yes. You can you can monkey patch in Scala. Um, you can also duct type in Scala, which uh, are two things that a lot of people are surprised about. But um, yeah, when an object actually exists, particularly a constant, you can't really change that. Mm-hmm. But then, like if you look at active model serializers, it's very close how that works to how JSON handling works in a language like Scala, where you just sort of you define the abstract syntax tree that is the JSON representation of this object, and then. Say, oh, and by the way, here's the apply and unapply methods for this case class. 
go ahead and figure out how to turn, how to make those things be the same. Um, and and then you can now serialize to and from uh, serialize that thing to and from JSON, uh, and it knows how to handle it. And it's just interesting because that 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 uh, the reason we we have to define the abstract syntax tree as opposed to just using hashes everywhere is because you have to have a type representation of what that thing is. It just works very nicely in general, and it's actually kind of le- I think is what I like about the language so much because it's. Static typing is always going to be a little bit more painful to write it, to work in than dynamically typed languages. I mean, you just have to work a little bit harder to make it uh, to make things work. But when you can get the gap small enough, the gain from having a compiler there checking your work is so huge that it makes that ty- that small um, that small loss in in uh, efficiency worth it. So you're finding the co- the compiler catching a lot of things for you. Well, yeah, I mean, you, I can rename a method or change the return type of a method and feel confident that I didn't just break my entire application. When you want to rename a method in Ruby, you got grep, lots of tests, and a little bit of prayer. True. And it also lets, I mean, I'm, I've been using Vim, but actually you can do it with Vim plugins too. But I mean, if you use an IDE, it lets the IDE do all kinds of static analysis on your code that it couldn't have otherwise as well. Yeah, it seems, it seems like the kind of thing where if you can get it in there in a lightweight way, there would definitely it'd be, it's a nice thing to have. I mean, the thing about Scala is, at least I always heard this, when I got into it, Scala had a reputation um, in my eyes for being a ridiculously complex language to learn. And it's, it's lived up to that reputation very well, and there are still parts of it. Um, we haven't even gotten into, like, covariant and contravariant type uh, parameters. And nor will we. <laughs> uh, but it's not as hard to jump into as you'd expect, because you can write it as Java without semicolons and sort of go from there and then figure out, oh, here's the Scala-ism I could have used instead, um, and your code gets cleaner and cleaner, and you know, then you learn about uh, options, and you stop using null, um, and said return some and none, uh, maybe, mo- maybe monad in, in Haskell, but in Scala. And then you learn about either, um, which can be either one thing or another thing, but you have to be aware that you're getting one of those two, and so you start using that to represent errors, um, instead of th- raising an exception, um, and give back more useful information, and you learn about futures and and so on and so forth, and it, it's just very. It, it's nice to see how like you can start with it knowing basic object oriented programming and the syntax, and actually get work done, and then slowly refactor it into using the language as it as it should be used. It's kind of like progressive enhancement almost. Yeah. Cool. So, do you have any uh, resources for picking up Scala for people that are interested? Take a look at the guides on the Scala website. There's some good ones on there. Uh, Martin Odursky, the creator of the language, does a free class on Course, uh, Coursera on the basics of it. And then he also is now doing a class on uh, reactive programming in Scala. Um, and both of those are really uh, – well, I haven't seen the reactive programming class one, but I'm assuming it will be good. And the intro to Scala is definitely a great resource. And then uh, O'Reilly, and there's a link to this on the book section of Scala's website. O'Reilly is a free version of their Scala programming book. I think it's just called Programming in Scala. It, it's a great resource. I highly recommend it. It's a bit dated. Um, it, it still has lots of parts of it that say, and in Scala 2.8, you'll be able to do, um, and Scala 2.8 came out in 2009, but it's still a mostly good, uh, valid resource. Hmm. Cool. Awesome. Well, Sean, I appreciate you uh, dropping by and teaching us a little Scala lesson. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, yes. Uh Oh, and so if someone wants to hit you up with some uh, fancy Scala questions, what's a good way to get in touch with you? 
Uh, you can hit me up at tw- on Twitter. I'm at S-G-R-I-F. Or you can email me at Sean at ThoughtBot.com. Well, that just about wraps things up. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to ThoughtBot.com slash GiantRobots slash 73. Today's podcast was recorded by Anna Mariola, stepping in for Mike Manor, who is out of town filming a workshop for Learn, produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.